Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Ryan Newman, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back, mate. It took a lot of pleading and, and, and begging and groveling at your feet, but uh, finally I, I got invited back. Yeah, well, when the, the master looks down upon the common folk, um, he has to be very selective in which analysts he chooses to partner with on a uh, deep dive into valuation. So <laughs> you're lucky. Um, don't get used to it. But no, seriously, mate, today we're talking about um, valuation. We're doing a deep dive on how people think about valuation and in particular aspiring analysts or investors. Um, I have it on good authority that you may have recently completed um, the Chartered Financial Analyst Program, um, which is congratulations because that's not easy, right? Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I know it's it's absolutely not easy. It's uh, go, going into it, I, I I didn't quite know what to expect, and I've always been a a fairly high achiever in in terms of educational studies and and such. But um, the CFA program really did prove incredibly challenging. I I did fail level two, so I had to sit that twice, and I think that 
uh, I think it gave me a good wake up call just to, you know, the, I guess the different strategies and the, the, the more effective ways to actually study. Mm. And had I not learned that, you know, through a, through a pretty tough lesson of, of failing level two, I, I don't know that I would have made it through level three. So I think, you know, gay, I think not passing level two the first time around was actually a valuable experience, even though it didn't feel like it at the time. Mm. But uh, yeah, really, really glad to pass uh, four exams, four CFA exams out of the way and none, none more to go. How many, so just to put it in context for people, how long did it take you to um, get through all three levels? Uh, so I think I worked out, I started studying for level one CFA in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through, so I did level one once, level two twice. Uh, unfortunately, my level three exam was postponed twice because of, uh, because of COVID. So I think I ended up studying for that for something like 26 months um so I, as i said i was very very happy to get through that because i was uh i, I was very aware that they were planning a, a fairly major uh overhaul of some of the study materials and i really didn't want to have to sit through and you know relearn a whole bunch of new materials so i was pretty pretty dead set on passing that one the first time around um but yeah look i guess from start to finish uh, about five years um and you know, the consensus is that to pass, you've probably got to study each level three, 300 hours, but I think that's probably understating the true amount that you actually need to. I think that's probably the bare minimum of what you need to do to, to pass each level. Yeah, it's kind of scary how much effort goes into the Charter Financial Analyst uh, programs and to, to earn that charter. Um, well, that's why it's so, you know, highly regarded, right, in the industry. And... Um, yeah, I just got to say credit to you because you had kids throughout it. You've, you know, COVID was there too. So it wasn't like, it's not exactly uh, as straightforward as one might think. And I only know two people. I only know two people that have passed all three levels in a row. So it gives an insight into how difficult it is to go through all three. Uh, it's definitely uh, consuming. Uh, so, some of, some of the people that I know and, and respect most have, have done pretty much the same as, as what I have failed at least one level. And I think the average is that you would pass uh, through four four attempts, so okay. failing one level once. Um, yep. So I guess in that sense, I had a pretty typical pathway, and who knows, maybe a lot of other people have uh, a similar experience to me, where you know they get through level one, you know, studying one way, and then get to level two and realize that, that it's just not cutting it. That they really mm. do need to to you know step it up a notch. Yeah. Um- Totally. It's, yeah, it's credit to you, mate. And uh, for anyone out there that's listening that holds the CFA charter, well done to you too. It's not easy. Now you can go on and study FRM or do the CAIA, C-A-I-A, um, any of those other credits, maybe even a PhD, who knows. But anyway, um, I know, mate, you're an analyst for Motley Fool Australia. We're going to have links in the show notes. Um, if you want to hear more of what Ryan has to say, you can uh, follow the links in the show notes or you can find him on Twitter or you can download um, our... Uh, value investing kind of workbook that we put together where you can uh, see links through to the Motley Fool Australia website and uh, even potentially join one of their membership services. If you're so inclined, uh, you'll see all the information on the site and the links in uh, the download that accompanies this, this lesson. Um, so mate, we're going to talk about valuation of in general, like what is it? Why is it important? We're going to talk about valuation multiples. We're going to talk about free cash flow, how you get to that. Um, DCF modeling, why that's important to most analysts. We're going to talk about a few different things. 
Um, the, the idea of this episode, as we talked of Ed just a minute ago, is just to introduce people to all of the concepts that you kind of need to know to arrive at a valuation of a company. Um, you might call this stock valuation or share valuation. Remember a share that is just part ownership of a business at the end of the day. So we're valuing a business. Then we break that down to a per share level. Um, and we're going to cover all this in a pretty short amount of time. So we're going to give you like a crash course on it, something that we didn't have when we were going through this program. Um, if you want to learn more about Ryan and my journey, you can go back to an episode that we did. Um, it was titled Becoming a Pro Analyst with Ryan. Um, and we, we recorded that in the Australian Investors Podcast. That's in the back catalog. Again, link is in the show notes. Mate, the first question is probably the easy one. What is valuation? Yeah, look, at its most basic level, uh, valuation, I guess, is the economic worth of a business or an asset, if you want to look at it even more broadly. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a business, just an asset in general. And, and when we buy something, you know, we all want to make sure that we're getting a fair, or we're, we're paying a fair price for what we're getting. So if I was to show you an apple and say, buy this apple for me from me for $10, you'd call me crazy because you know that you could literally just go down to Woolworths and buy the same asset for for five uh, for 50 cents or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. So in your head, you've sort of ascribed a value to the apple based on what you think is fair. And you're handing over one asset, so your money for another, my apple, uh, to fulfill what we call your private utility, which is ultimately what makes you satisfied. Um, it's the same when you buy shares, uh, so an asset like shares. To buy those shares, you're really handing over money that could otherwise be put to use elsewhere. Um, you're, you're, you're putting that money away now uh, in the hope that you'll get something more out of it down the track. Um, hence, you, you want to make sure that you're getting a fair or reasonable deal in return. Um, I, I think one of the important things or the, the important distinctions to make here, though, is that everything has a value, but some assets can be difficult, if not impossible, to know what that value actually is. And that's where value differs from the price. So if you look at uh, a broker, your brokerage account and you see these three little ticket codes uh, flashing across the screen, you see the price. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what the shares are worth. It doesn't necessarily mean that's their value, but that is their price. So what we want to know is actually what is the value of those assets? What is the future earnings potential of those assets so that we can understand or, or that we can ascertain that we are getting a good deal here? Mm. So you said future value of the earnings or profit or cash flow, however you mm -hmm. want to describe it. Why don't we just look at the stock chart and look backwards? Like, why don't we say, oh, it made, you know, $10 or $50 of profit last year. Therefore, the value is X this year. Like, why do we look forward? So let's uh, let's have a look at let, let's have a look back at something that we're all overly familiar with. Unfortunately, COVID. So let's say you've got a cafe that's been open twenty uh, open you know, every day of the week for five years. You know, looking back, that's that's a pretty reliable track record. But what happens if COVID then hits and the cafe is closed for you know well it's it's literally closed overnight. You you don't have any earnings potential. That's something that's happening in the future. So we're not paying for what's already happened in the past. We want to know what is going to happen. And unfortunately, we can't know for certain what's going to happen. But, you know, that's that's where as analysts, we use our intuition and, uh, I guess, experience to come up with estimates. Yeah, right. So the, the thing they're saying is history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. So we might be able to say cafe, this cafe has earned this amount of money in the past. Um, in the future, it is likely maybe to be somewhere around that. So you can maybe use this as like a base case, but there are 
realities where either side of that, um, you know, you know, it could go really right or could go wrong. You know, there's some tail risk there as well. So we're basically paying for a future stream of cash flows. So if we buy an asset, that's what we expect to receive. Um, we'll get to multiples and how all that has, how all of that shakes out in a minute. Um, so why then does having any understanding of valuation actually matter? Like why do, you know, if you're a new investor and you're thinking, oh, you know, this stuff sounds really complicated, spreadsheets, not my jam. Um, why does valuation matter? And actually I might throw in a second question. So first question is why does valuation matter? And second question would be, if you were to research a company from start to finish, what percentage of your time would be actually dedicated to a spreadsheet versus other types of research, like learning about the business? That's a really good question and probably something that I didn't have a firm understanding of or appreciation of when I became an analyst. Um, I'll, I'll, get, I'll start the second question first. Very little, uh, to be honest. So I guess my process is largely going through, reading through annual reports, through, uh, you, you know, through other, uh, other announcements made by the business over time. Um, looking at news reports or blog reports, if you can find them on on certain businesses. So you want to you want to really try and get this qualitative data down pat. You want to try and understand the business for what it is. Um, as I go through those those announcements, what I often do is fill in a spreadsheet. So you've got you know I I, I find a lot of value uh, from that process by by being able to go through jot down you know where the expenses are, where the revenue is coming from. Um, you know, what margins it's sort of accruing because that can sort of help me understand the business's strategy. You know, is this company spending more on sales and marketing? Why? Is this company spending more on development? Why? You know, and is that paying off in terms of uh, revenue or maybe um, client or, or maybe client retention or something like that? So by going through though that qualitative data, I do jot down the, qu uh, the quantitative data as I'm going. In terms of actually forecasting though that so the dcf part or the valuation part that's a very small component of of the actual role in my mind because you really want to understand what what it is that you're valuing in the first place to make it as accurate if you will as, as possible um, as for the first part of the question why does valuation matter uh, from an investor's perspective it, it really matters because you want to make sure you're giving your capital the best possible chance of earning a good return. So if one asset offers a be better value compared to another, then you ultimately want to get more bang for your buck. Uh, valuation, I guess, can also take into account risk. So if, if one asset carries more risk than the other, uh, you, you're really going to want to pay uh, less for that asset or perhaps be compensated more for it. So you need to be willing to, you need to be able to find that price that you're willing to pay based on that valuation. Um, and you can, I guess, look at it more broadly as well. So from the perspective of other stakeholders, not just investors. So companies and their assets need to be valued to acquire debt, as an example. So valuation matters to, to someone like a bank or a, a creditor. Um, customers also need to be able to compare the value of one, comp one company's products versus those of a competitor and so on. So valuation really matters for more stakeholders than just the, the investor. Mm. So you said before that valuation um is different to price because we know that there's one true price. Like you can mm -hmm. see it in your brokerage account if you log in, right? Or you can go over and see the, the stock price. Um, so if you and I did a valuation of the same company, 
um, let's say Apple is a big company that I own shares in. Uh, if you and I did a valuation of a company, would you expect us to have exactly the same valuation? No. And uh, I'm actually going to draw on a, uh, a really good analogy I find uh, of, of a really a really intelligent investor that I used to work with by the name of Matt Joss. You've interviewed him uh, on, on your show before, but really respect him as an analyst. And I'm going to butcher this analogy a little bit, but it was something to the effect of when you do evaluation, you're going, it, it's basically a single star in a galaxy of stars that you're going to land on. So there are so many different assumptions that go into evaluation, uh, particularly a DCF, you know, a, a evaluation by multiples approach that that might be a bit more simple. But when you're looking at a DCF, when you're plugging in your expectations for what, you know, what this operating expense is going to do or what the, this cost of cost of revenue is going to be in five years time or whatever, all of those different assumptions or, or estimates or forecasts will result in a slightly different outcome. So, you know, you and I might, I mean, even, even to extend on that point, you and I both, sorry, you and I might both land on a, an intrinsic value estimate of, say, $2.50 per share, but the way we get there is different. So, in that sense, it's complete coincidence that we both landed on $2.50. So, it is unique. It is, uh, I guess, down to the analyst's preferences, the analyst's own beliefs, uh, the information that the analyst has come across in their you know their their, their prior research, um, as I said, which a lot a lot goes in in sorry a lot of work goes in before you actually get to that DCF or valuation stage. Um, so yeah, it really depends on a lot of different factors. Mm. Yeah, I feel like um, the way I heard it put to me is like, so why bother with all this valuation nonsense if it's not even that accurate? Like, if you can't be specifically correct, why would you even bother? Um, and the idea is that you want to know the rules of the game before you play it. And I think of like an analogy of like a sporting you know, code. So let's take soccer as an example. Um, you have to know how to kick the ball. You have to know how to head of the ball, pass the ball. You know, you can't use your hands, um, all these different types of things, right? But once you understand them, then you can actually have a better appreciation of the game and you can think about strategy. You can think about all this and the other. But at the end of the day, it's not necessarily, you know, if you win or you lose, it's not necessarily because your strategy was exactly the same as the next coach or manager or player. It could be co completely coincidental. Um, but the idea is that everyone should have at least a fundamental understanding Understand. of it before they go onto the, the pitch and they start to play. Um, and so like, there are some rules of thumb, which we'll bring up in a minute. Um, I think there's an important distinction to be made here, though, mate, between, say, evaluation multiples. So here we're talking about things like price earnings ratios, uh, enterprise value. So that's where we get like the total value of the company and we compare it to something just for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, like multiples is just like we take one line item typically from the, uh, the income statements like profit and loss, um, or we take something from the balance sheet, like the book value of a company, so value of assets and whatever, and we compare that to price. So that's where you get like price to earnings, price to profit, price to whatever, price to book. Uh, and that's how we do a lot of these multiples. So let's go to multiple. Um, I think it's important to distinguish between that and discounted cash flow analysis, which we'll get to in a little bit. But what is evaluation multiple? Can you walk us through good, bad, and the ugly of that? Yeah, and I think uh, th there's there's actually one more step of you know relativity there, or, or you know you, you mentioned like earnings relative to price, and I, I think it goes beyond that because, and, and this is something that I think a lot of investors maybe don't appreciate enough or don't realize is that. 
this is a this is a relative approach. So it's not just earnings relative to price. It's also one company's price to earnings ratio versus another company's price to earnings ratio. Right. So, because a PE of 10 doesn't tell you anything, but like a price earnings ratio of 10 times or 15 times, the number by itself doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you anything unless you put it in comparison to others in the same field or, or others that are, you know, at least similarly comparable. But anyway, we can come back to that surely. But as you said, difference between multiples approach and also a DCF approach. So a DCF approach goes, it goes an extra step towards, you know, looking at, I guess, the, the, the future cash flows of a business and discounting that forward. We're going to talk about that shortly. Multiples approach doesn't go that far. It's, as you said, it is a much simpler approach to, to valuing a business and it does take one line item and compare it to another. You mentioned that the example that you mentioned was uh, the price to earnings ratio. It's very basic, um, doesn't take into account a lot of what is happening, I guess, at the top or the middle of the income statement. So it's not something that I particularly like using. Um, it doesn't focus on the, the core operations of business, for instance. The PE is, I guess, the most common go-to for a lot of investors. It's, it's the one that a lot of investors are most familiar with. But I think there are more that are they're more valuable in the output that they give and, and what they actually tell the investor. Um, and one of those, I, I guess, is rather than using the price or the market value of a business, I, I often actually try and start to use or start by using the enterprise value of a business. So what's that? Is, can, you, yeah, can you explain what that is? Yeah, so the enterprise value of a business, if you think about the market capitalization of a business, so how many shares are on sale multiplied by the price of those shares, that's the market value. It, that So the market value itself doesn't take into account that businesses have different capital structures. So how much debt a company has or how much cash a company has on its balance sheet. The enterprise value goes a step beyond what the market, uh, the market capitalization does, and it does actually take into account those factors. So the enterprise value, I guess, on a, a, on a really simplistic basis is market capitalization plus debt minus the cash. Uh, and the reason that we do that is because if you're buying a company outright and it has debt, you're going to have to pay down that debt to, to actually own the company in, it, in its entirety. Likewise, if it's got cash on its balance sheet, then if you're handing over cash just to get cash in return, the cash basically just cancels each other out. So, you know, if a company does have more cash than debt, you know, and you're, you're comparing the two side by side, then uh, the one with cash will be um, a, a cheaper buy. Okay, so there was one question that came through on Twitter, um, which is from Outside Capital underscore, and he or she says, different multiples, etc. Like I asked for people to send their questions in advance. Different multiples, etc., to use across different industries for comparative analysis. He he or she says, think for the average punter, uh, being able to have quick reference points within industries. Markets, time periods is probably more beneficial than attempting to do a DCF. Um, and so the, the crux of the question is, oh, and here's another one that comes through from X Jordanary Chef, who says um, enterprise value is really important to understand how and why something like enterprise value to sales would be a useful valuation metric for certain companies. So we've basically got people asking for the valuation multiples, which ones might work for which industries and why. So maybe if we just give a couple examples, like if I say technology companies, like a 
a fast growing technology company, would you prefer to use enterprise value to sales or the PE ratio? So yeah, look, there's no there's no one there's no one way fits all. So it's going to be different for each for each investor. But in this case, I would absolutely use something like the EV to sales over price to earnings ratio. And I'll give a pretty pretty clear cut reason why. So there's a company on the ASX called Zero, and uh, that that's a company that I own for full disclosure. But there was a there was a time, I mean even now, where the business was investing very heavily in development and also sales and marketing and it wasn't generating profit you know even at a even at an operating profit level it was it was pretty low and if you were trying to use a price to earnings multiple you know you'd either not get a result because it's not earning anything or something like you know price to earnings ratio of 2000 or 3000 or something absolutely ridiculous and in my mind, that doesn't take into account the true reflection of the business, nor its strategy, the strategy that it's actually employing, you know, as it goes. Something like EV to sales, I think, is more appropriate for a technology business or, or many other early stage businesses because, uh, for one reason, all of these companies typically are generating sales. If it's not generating sales, then it's typically not something that I'm even looking at. So that's not something that I, I generally consider. But um, yeah, a company, so the companies that I look at are pretty much all generating revenue. So it is something that is comparable across businesses. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter if one business is profitable and the other one's not. I can still compare their price to sales or their enterprise value to sales. So that's something there. I, I think you can get more specific though. And, you know, there's, there's other factors like uh, annualized recurring revenue or total contract value. Of course, you need to look into those sort of things and, and ascertain whether or not that is truly annualized. Or, you know, I'm sorry, whether that truly is recurring, rather. Mm. Uh, some some businesses can be quite liberal with what they define as recurring. Um, but, you know, you can sort of compare businesses based on those metrics as well. There are, of course, other, other metrics as well as you go further down the, the income statement. So rather than enterprise value to sales, you could be looking at enterprise value to uh, EBITDA, which is effectively operating earnings. Um, I guess a reason why you would use this is uh, EBITDA is often used as a proxy for like operating cash flow or free cash flow. I, I think that's a, that's a fair proxy, but it's it's not completely accurate in that EBITDA doesn't take into account things like capital expenditures or working capital or taxes. So there are, of course, things that are excluded from EBITDA, but I mean... Uh, I guess when you're using multiples, it is a, a rough approach that you're using anyway. Yeah. Um, I guess what you're getting at here too is the life cycle of a company. It's important to know if it's an earlier stage company, you want to stay further up the income statement when you're doing those comparisons. So like price of sales, price of gross profit, all that sort of stuff. Even you know cash receipts or net cash flows if it's, if it's got them. But then as the business expands and it matures... You know, those we see more of the sales that come in the door from those incremental sales falling to profit or falling further down the income statement. Um, you could probably say, if we're going to use zero as an example, zero is probably in that expansionary phase where it's still growing its sales. It's now starting to get profitability. So now the PE ratio is positive. Um, and you could probably start to look at further down the income statement if you're doing your comparisons. Whereas, say, like Apple is a very mature business. So you would be willing, maybe more so, to use like a PE ratio there. 
Absolutely, yeah. So EV, uh, whether it's price to earnings or EV to earnings, um, I would definitely use on a more mature business. Ideally with steadier earnings, you know, where, I mean, obviously you'd exclude things like exceptional items, you know, whether there's an impairment that's, you know, a one-off or something that you would reasonably consider to be a one-off. Um, but yeah, I think I think then you can more safely use EV to NPAT, but certainly not for, for early stage technology businesses. Okay. So I guess then we've talked a lot about multiples here, but my question is very kind of simple, is do you actually use multiples for your valuations? Uh, I do um, as a as a rule of thumb. I, I think I, I I very rarely use it as like a, a be all and end all. So something that you know I will base a decision on. But I do I do like to have comparisons between different businesses. So as I said before, relative. You know, if, if one if one company is trading on a price to, uh, 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 sorry an EV to sales of say twenty, and another one is trading on an EV to sales of five, then mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna want to know why the the one that's trading on a on an EV to sales of five is trading at such a discount, or why the one that's trading at twenty times is trading at such a premium. That can help to understand and I guess unravel the story as well. So the bull case or the bear case, it can give you a better insight into what the market's thinking and you know potentially help you to pick up on things that you otherwise otherwise might have missed as well. Um, I think as well, you can go with a hybrid approach. So you don't necessarily have to rely solely on, uh, you know, a, a multiples approach or solely on a DCF. You can combine two, two different approaches on a weighted basis. So for instance, you might, you might realize that you, you get a valuation of $1 on a multiples approach and an evaluation of $2 on a DCF approach. And you might say, well, hang on, those are you know, pretty far apart. I want to actually give both of I want to give both of them a fifty percent weighting. So you know, taking the average of the two, you end up with a valuation of roughly a dollar fifty. Mm. So, and again, that comes back to our earlier point that you know we really are landing on one single star in a galaxy of stars, depending on you know your own preferences and the the strategy that you use. Yeah, we see that a lot in broker reports, like sell side broker research. Mm. You see a lot of like P ratios and. Price to sales ratio. So, for example, if you want to keep it real simple, you could say sales are going to grow at ten percent for the next ten years, um, and in the tenth year, the company's shares will trade at ten times sales. So then you would effectively go to spreadsheet. You go to that tenth row, a tenth column across. What's the sales in that year multiplied by ten? Well, that's the value of the company. Pretty simple. Uh, you can discount that back to today, and that's what some brokers do. Um, and then so you're effectively saying, but I, I find with that approach, what you're effectively doing is you're effectively betting on the sentiment in the future. So you're not getting an absolute figure today. You're saying in the future, my investors will be willing to pay something like this. And that's, if I'm going to look at a multiple, I'm pretty much looking at like the long-term average of what investors have been willing to pay just to understand, like you said, what investors have maybe indirectly uh, pricing in for the future of this company. And you can compare that across industries. Um, that's a good that, yeah. that's a good point and i think i think too and this is part of our philosophy at the motley fool as well that it's not all about you, you don't want, I, I guess you don't want to put too much um too much value on too, too much choice of words there, too much <laughs> um value on the valuation that you're reaching because particularly for the businesses that i'm looking at where where they're high growth businesses 
there is a lot of uncertainty that goes into it. And I think if you if you land on a valuation of a dollar and the, the stock's trading at a dollar five, if you sell based on that and say, well, the stock's clearly overvalued, there's potential that it's not. There's potential that you are just wrong or that you are under, underestimating that growth potential. So, and again, as, as I said, that's part of our philosophy at the Motley Fool that we, we really want to get a better understanding of the business itself to understand what it's doing, what its prospects are, why we like it, you know, potentially so the, the, the risks as well that could potentially derail that thesis and, you know, ascertain there, therefore how comfortable we are with holding a business based on that. But you are absolutely right in saying that using a value, uh, using a multiple approach and just sort of extending that out to the future, it is definitely basing that on, on market sentiment or expectations of market sentiment. Mm. I'm just going to show you something, uh, just bringing this on you. And for those of you that are just listening to this uh, discussion, this will be included in the um, Investor Bootcamp training manual. For, if you go down to the episode uh, in the show notes there, you'll see this graphic there. And I'm just going to show you this here, mate. This is actually, this is from our Value Investor Program. And it's based on um, Boston Consulting Group, BGC's uh, findings when they looked at some uh, companies. And they looked at basically the returns of companies over time. And I'll try and explain it for those of you that are just listening. But it basically basically compared the kind of like the, the free cash flow, the profit multiples or like the multiples that you'd pay for a business, the, the margins of a business and the revenue growth to determine um, basically the, the, the explanatory power. And I won't go into too much detail here, but basically what was found is that like sales and profit growth explain the most of a business's return over five and 10 years. So free cash flow potential of that company explains the most. So when we're talking about like the growth of a business, if you are a long-term investor, it's really important to focus on like the growth of a business more so than say like the profit multiple that you're paying today, which in this case looks like this little green line. Um, the green line and the multiple will have more explanatory power in the short term, but in the long term, it's really the growth of the business that drives the returns. Um, and I think that's a really interesting study because it reminds us that the qualitative aspects of a business are more, more important to get right if you are a long-term investor. So if you're investing five to 10 years out into the future, that kind of reinforces your point there. Um, so let's talk a little bit about then without going like way down the rabbit hole of like formulas and whatever, let's talk about what a discounted cash flow or DCF is. Um, maybe we need to explain what free cash flow is, just at a high level. And then how we go about doing a DCF. Yeah, so free, a company's free cash flow, you're really looking, I mean, we've all heard the term cash is king. Yep. So a business that, you know, owns a whole bunch of assets but isn't generating any cash, it's not worth anything because mm. no one wants to buy it if it's not going to generate any cash. So the free cash flow element is really, really important because it determines how much cash a company is actually generating from the revenue that it brings in. So if if you're if you're charging subscribers hundred dollars hundred dollars per subscription, you know you've got uh, operating costs. So you've got you know hosting costs on the cloud. You've got um, you know cost of equipment, cost of cost of employment. All of those things are eating eating down that cash. 
at the end of the day, the free cash flow is how much cash is left over from that revenue that you 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 brought in, and that's really what a discounted cash flow analysis is looking at. It's it's trying to estimate the amount of free cash flow that is going to come from a business or an asset over the next few years and then into perpetuity, so uh, into eternity, um, and and discounting that value back to today to determine how much you should be paying for it. And that is known as the uh, the intrinsic value of a business or the, the estimated intrinsic value of a business. That's that's discounted cash flow analysis in a in a very basic nutshell. So basically we've got forecasting the true value of a business out into the future. Um, we collect all of that cash flow and we say what's the value of that today? Um, and that's what we're trying to get through. Whereas say earnings, like you mentioned before, things like EBITDA, that misses a few of those things. And earnings um, misses a few of those things. So earnings or profit, by the way, earnings is an American word for profit. Um, earnings um, miss some of the things like taxes or they can miss things like EBITDA, sorry, misses taxes. Earnings misses things like um, maybe if there's like the true cash cost. So, when we are starting with the income statement, we have to adjust that for um, non-cash items and then take that across to cash flow. If we use the cash flow method, we have to adjust for other things like working capital as well, right? Um, and basically what we're trying to do is find out what is this business capable of actually achieving into the future? Um, you mentioned like working capital is one input before. Um, you've got, uh, what else have you got? You've got working capital. Capital expenditures. Capital expenditures. You've got... Um, depreciation amortization um you've got just the share-based share-based expenses share-based compensation sbc yep. that's a big one in the us right so you have Absolutely. to adjust, yep. adjust for all of those because they are actually real costs and i think it becomes quite uh, it's there's a bit of an art form to this because while we say that there are certain rules to calculate free cash flow to firm or free cash flow to equities that's known sometimes you have to know where to look to find these things right yeah, you absolutely do. Um, and I mean, as you said, with the, with the DCF, so the approach that I take is really starting from uh, the income statement. So starting from revenue, making our way down through the, the cost of cost of sales to get the gross profit, working your way through the operating expenditures, um, which gets you to, to EBITDA or EBIT if, if um, depreciation and amortization are included. Um, and as you said, getting all the way down to profit or earnings, as it's as it's called in uh, in the states. But from there, I mean, the net profit result doesn't actually reflect the free cash flow. So the net profit is is an accounting term. Free cash flow is more of a you know reality check, I suppose. So when you've got the net profit, you do need to make adjustments. So uh, and a good example, as you mentioned a minute ago, was depreciation and amortization. And that is basically uh, the the withering down of an asset or uh, or, or software in, in terms of amortization, but the the reduction in their their value over time. Um, but it's not a cash cost, so it doesn't. Co- so if my computer depreciates ten percent this year, it's not actually costing me you know one hundred or two hundred dollars in cash. That expense was incurred in the past. Where I where I actually purchased the computer and now it's just sort of depreciating in, in value over time. So it's not a cash cost. So we need to actually add that back to the net profit result or the net operating profit result 
uh, to, to start adjusting to get back towards that free cash flow element. Uh, likewise, as you said as well, we've got um, working capital. So whether that's inventories or accounts receivable, accounts payable that need to be accounted for. Uh, we've got share-based compensation. So we know uh, in particular a lot of technology businesses actually pay their staff or incentivize their staff quite heavily in shares as opposed to uh, cash, so a salary. So they might, to attract uh, to attract a really high-end talent uh, in, in the developer world, they might say, yeah, we're going to give you $80,000 per year as a salary, and we're also going to give you share options. Again, that's not actually costing the business anything, but it is costing shareholders down the track. If those, if those options uh, are executed, then the share share dilution increases, which means that the you know per share basis for, for investors decreases. So it is a real cost that we need to take take into account. But again, it's not a cash cost. So those sort of things need to be adjusted, you know, at the, at the bottom of the DCF model uh, to to go from net op- net operating profit after tax to uh, to a free cash flow analysis, uh, to, to a free cash flow basis. Sorry. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. A lot of people get confused, um, and even this I still get confused sometimes when. Uh, it gets to working capital. What do you include? What don't you include? How do you separate capex? Um, and more recently, like things like leases versus uh, amortization and depreciation. Um, it can get. It can seem like there's a bit of gymnastics to get between uh, operating profit all the way across to free cash flow, but it does. It, if you just think very simple terms, as you just broke down there with your your computer. Um, follow the cash, follow which way the cash is going and try and identify what is normal for this business. What is a normal cash flow stream for this business? How much is it making, et cetera? Everything else is kind of just a bit of smoke and mirrors. And we can think back to some companies in the past, like in particular uh, companies that I think it was, there's a company called Quintus here in Australia that did like Indian sandalwood. Um, And there were pine plantations going back before that. These were businesses that were effectively booking accounting profits because the value of their trees were going up uh, because they were getting closer to maturity, getting closer to being, you know, lumber or timber, uh, getting closer to uh, producing the sand, uh, the oil from Indian sandalwood. And yet they never really got there because even though they were recording accounting profits from the revaluation of assets, they weren't, they didn't have any cash flow, So they were kind of, crushed in that way yeah exactly um, just yeah. because a tree just because a tree is a foot tall it doesn't mean it's you know print, printing hundreds that's it exactly so um this is where cash flow can be a real good reality check on um investors and, and in, in particular the companies that you're following um often times you'll find that the more like early stage companies have to talk a really big game uh, to get people to invest because they don't have free cash flow and they know that that's what most analysts are waiting for before they invest. How about then? So we know we've got like, we get to this free cash flow figure from one year to the next. Um, at the very end, we have something called the terminal value, which we can explain briefly as like the value of the company at the end of the period in which we forecast. Uh, so that there's, a, there's some calculations for that online, which we can link to. But then how do we choose? This is where like we get into academia. How do we choose what rate we discount those cash flows back. So let's say we've got, you know, $1,000 in year 10. How do we get that value from year 10 back to the current period? Yeah, so, I mean, again, cash is king. Another one that we're all familiar with is a dollar today is worth, uh, sorry, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. 
and and that is effectively the discount rate. And discount rate, I, I guess, is a little bit of uh, accounting mumbo jumbo or for, for uh, required rate of return. So mm-hmm. if you are buying an asset today, what return do you want to make it worth your while? So that is that is really what we're talking about when we talk about the discount rate. And one way that we can measure the discount rate is called the WAC, W-A-C-C, which stands for Weighted Average Cost of Capital. And effectively, when you're looking at financial statements to determine how reliant a company is, I guess, on debt versus equity to fund its growth, that will help to determine what the WAC is, the Weighted Average Cost of Capital. So give it, you give those elements, those, those components rather, the debt and the equity, a percentage and then multiply those percentages by the cost of those sources of capital. So uh, let's say you've got a business that's completely financed by debt. That company is going to be pretty risky, but they might be, they might be able to acquire debt at, say, 5% per annum. Their whack is going to be 5%. To, to clear, that, to clear that, that hurdle, they've got to earn 5%. But it becomes a little bit more complex when the business is funded both by equity and by debt, for instance. And that's, again, where WAC comes in. So you you are really trying to weight those two different components of of how a company is funding its operations. Um, Obviously, to to ascertain the cost of debt is one thing. You know, it's pretty simple to go and find the rate that the bank, that, that the company is paying the bank to actually borrow that capital. It, come, it becomes a little bit more complex when it, becomes to, when it comes to the equity component. How do you actually price equity? And the way that we do that is uh, through a model called CAPM, which is the, the, the uh, capital, uh, sorry, capital asset pricing model. And basically what we're looking at here, and, and the formula, it's pretty simple, so I'll just, I'll just rip it off. But the expected return is the risk-free rate of return plus the beta of the market risk premium. So the beta multiplied multiplied by market risk premium. (laughs) You said simple? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess when you you get to the, uh, the, the, some of the formulas that you have to memorize in in, uh, CFA, yes, it's quite simple. All right, so I'll break that down. (laughs) Risk-free rate. What what is the risk-free rate? If you were to go and just put money in the bank or buy buy a government bond, that is effectively the risk-free rate. You know, let's say 2%. A company's beta, now we're talking how much a company's shares tend to move relative to the market. So if the market goes up 1% and a company's shares go up 1.2%, then the beta is 1.2. That's, that's a, a, a pretty uh, basic statement to make. But then the market risk premium element of that, that formula is basically how much more are you expecting, how much more in returns are you expecting to generate by investing in the market versus investing in a risk-free asset. So the market risk premium, how much you want to get from the market versus how much you could get uh, from a risk-free asset. So as I said, risk-free rate of return plus the beta multiplied by the market risk premium. That is CAPM and that is how we calculate um, the, the cost of equity. Um, and maybe you can just link to that that uh, formula mm. in the show notes as well. It is, it, it's hard, hard, hard to explain. Hopefully easier once people actually see it in front of them. Yeah, so it is um, a bit easier once you see it in front of you. So just to summarize there, so you've got two sources of capital and they combined equal your weighted average cost of capital. 
Um, so you have debt and you have uh, equity because to encourage someone to invest in your shares on the stock market, there is a cost associated with that. You have to, that's a basically what the, the, the equity component is. Um, and I guess the, the CAPM, so CAPM is how we calculate the equity side of that. And the cost of debt is how we calculate the, the debt side of that. Now, um, there are a few, I guess, factors or variables which you mentioned in there. The risk-free rate is typically the 10-year bond rate, typically. Um, and you can get that from Bloomberg. So you can get that, like, you don't have to have a Bloomberg terminal. You can just get it on the website. Um, the, the, the beta of a company can also is also important because a higher beta means a higher cost of equity because the academic assumption here is more volatile equals more risk which we're fundamental investors, but we're using something that's based on like market volatility. But they also, it's important if you go to Yahoo Finance or you go to uh, the Wall Street Journal website or you go to wherever, a Morningstar, you might see a different beta for the same company. Some of them might use monthly three-year rolling betas. Some of them might use five-year, whatever. Um, the other part in there, which you mentioned is the market risk premium. The way I think about this is, the extra return the stock market has to provide for you to invest in it over the, the bond market, basically. Um, and you can estimate the return of the market by looking at the S&P ASX 200 or the S&P 500 total return over 10 or 20 years. That's basically like what the market has returned. Subtract the risk-free rate over that time. And that's the market risk premium the premium, the extra bit you get from investing in the stock market. Now, Ryan, we've just talked about CAPAM. We've talked about WAC. We've mentioned something called discount rates. Honestly, what's an easier way to think about this? I'm thinking maybe you could think of a discount rate as your expected return. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, expected return or probably even at a more basic level, required return. Yep. So, so if I'm so going to buy a if I'm going to buy a share at one dollar today, then I need to make sure that I that, that I guess the 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 quant the quant uh, details sort of align with that. So is this company going to be able to generate enough free cash flow to justify that price that I'm paying? Yep. So basically, what we're saying is, if your discount rate, if let's say you did a weighted average cost of capital calculation using CAPM, comes out at ten percent. Um, and your valuation is the fair valuation at that price. So let's say that using that 10% whack, the valuation is in line with the stock price today. If everything was held equal, every single thing was held equal, you would expect a 10% return, right? Um, Precisely. Yeah. So that's the idea is that the discount rate, if everything else is held equal, the valuation equals the stock price, you're going to get the discount rate as a return. And that's why some people use reverse DCFs. Have you ever done a reverse DCF or something like that? I have done a reverse DCF, yeah. And it could, it could be really handy to, to, to get a good understanding of what the market is pricing in and what you, what you would need to expect to be, paying, uh, to be paying that kind of price today. Yeah. So just for those of you who are listening and you're thinking, what's a reverse DCF? So we've just talked about how you can do a valuation of a company using discounted cash flow analysis. And let's say the stock price today is a dollar and your valuation that you do with your DCF based on all of your assumptions is $1.20. You could say that's 20 cents undervalued. What some investors will do is they will 
manually change their model. So their growth rates, their profit margin assumptions, whatever, so that the stock price and the valuation match. And you'd be like, well, why does that, why would you change it? The idea is that then you can say, okay, if we assume that the stock market is fairly pricing this company, what growth rates do we need? It's kind of like a what if analysis if you ever did one of those at uni. Um, and I feel like that's that's a, a lot of people talk about that, like expected returns and you know re- reversing the profit, um, reversing the free cash flow into the valuation is very handy because you might find that, hey, in order to justify the valuation, the, the stock price today, Alphabet, as an example, it's the company, Alphabet might have to grow 20% for the next 10 years. I don't think it's going to do that. I think it only grow 10%. Therefore, the stock's overvalued. It's fair enough. Um, it's, there's many ways to do this. And I think this, once again, it comes back to being comfortable with valuation. So kind of like knowing your limitations. Um, one- Look, I, I, I'll, I'll throw in one more analogy there as well to, to hopefully make it uh, even simpler in the listener's mind. Uh, again, going back to the analogy of you own a, a cafe. Mm-hmm. So you buy a you recognize that you can buy a coffee machine today. It's going to cost you $10,000. And you estimate that over the course of uh, 12, uh, 12 months, that it can, it can generate $12,000 in revenue. That's, or $12,000 in income, I should say. Yep. So that $12,000 in one year's time, how much is that worth to you today? You know, you want to pay a thousand dollars today for twelve hundred dollars uh, for for twelve hundred dollars in the future. Mm-hmm. That's a twenty percent return. That seems pretty attractive. That and I guess that that goes towards what you were saying with the reverse DCF. If, however, you estimate that it was going to cost a thousand dollars today to buy this coffee machine, and in twelve months' time it was going to be uh, only nine hundred dollars of income, and that that's not enough for you, then again, you don't do it. It's just not worth your while. And you are discounting that back to today to, to I guess, give you that answer. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of like how we calculate bond yields. I don't want to get too geeky, but uh, it's kind of like how we calculate some bonds in a similar way. We know what mm. the value is at maturity. It's about figuring out, like, how do we get there? Um, so we, we don't necessarily need to spend too long on this, but some of the questions on Twitter came up with this, which was like, how do you know what multiples to use in different environments? Um, like for a bank, for example, we're probably not going to do a discounted cash flow analysis where we calculate the depreciation amortization because a bank or even a real estate investment trust might have slightly different um, accounting because things are like flipped on their head and this is going that way. That the assets and debt, are going that way. And debt is an, debt is an actual asset for a bank as well. Yeah, that's it. So things are like flipped on their head. Mm. So somewhere on the line, someone come up with this idea of a dividend discount model or like calculating the cash flow to the equity investor. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. Sorry, you're asking how the dividend discount model works? Yeah. Specifically? Yeah, so dividend discount model, it's it's really interesting. And, and this is something that I've learned through the CFA course. It, it's really a derivation of something called the Grinold Kroner model. And I'll, I'll break this down and, and simplify it so that listeners can really understand what we're talking about here. The expected return on an asset is basically income plus growth. So dividends plus growth. The Grinnell Kroner model extends that to say that the expected return is the dividend yield minus the change in shares outstanding plus the change in earnings plus the change in earnings multiple. So dividend, shares outstanding, 
change in earnings multiple, and change in earnings. So those four components. And basically that's saying that in the short run, returns can be generated in any of those four different ways. Um, so share buybacks are basically a, di a different way of returning capital to shareholders rather than actually handing out dividends, you're, you're buying back shares and increasing the value of the shares, theoretically speaking. In the long run, however, that doesn't actually stack up. In the long run, earnings can't keep on growing at a higher rate than the economy. If earnings kept on growing at a higher rate than economic growth, more generally, then eventually the business that you're valuing is going, is going to be the economy. That, that's just the way that works. It can't keep on growing at a higher rate. So in the long run, we basically assume that the growth of a business, the earnings growth of a business is going to equal GDP growth rate or, or perhaps less. The market also can't keep on increasing the multiple that it pays for the shares. So you, kept, you mentioned before that you, you often look back at the historical uh, earnings multiple, multiple of a business and try and sort of push that forward. So if historically speaking, the market has been willing to pay 10 times earnings for, for a stock, then we sort of assume that it's going to, in the long run, it's going to be willing to pay that amount as well. So the market can't keep on increasing the multiple that it pays for the shares. Likewise, if all of the shares are repurchased, then there will be nothing of the company left. So looking, looking more broadly and taking all those factors into account when we look at the Grinold Krona model, the Grinold Krona model basically simplifies in the long run to, to being the Gordon growth model, which is what the, we call the, the dividend discount model. And basically what that says is that returns in the long run will only come from earnings growth and dividend. So we're basically cancelling out the, the other elements from the Grinnell Krona model, which was the, the change in shares outstanding and the, cha the change in earnings multiple, and saying that returns will only come from earnings growth and dividends in the long run. And that's why the, the Gordon growth model or the dividend discount model, as you call it, that's why that is a, a, a quite or can be quite a handy and simple tool to use for businesses like banks or, or, or other mature businesses where we can sort of, I guess, get a fair estimate of what their dividend growth will be, what their dividends will be in the future and also what their earnings will grow by. We've had, a, we've had enough data in, in, over history and, you know, these businesses are, are, are at a, sorry, they're, they're at a mature enough stage in their life to be able to, reasonably safely say, okay, this is going to grow at 10% per annum. That's where something like the, the dividend discount model can come in handy. It's a, it's a more simple tool that can be used rather than going through a DCF approach or a multiples approach. Again, just saying that earning uh, that the returns, so the return that you expect, will come from either earnings growth or dividends. Mm. Oh, so, sorry, both of those elements, I should say. So, yeah, so basically... Um when we do a discounted cash flow analysis, and typically we're talking free cash flow to firm, FCFF, what we're doing is we're calculating the value of the cash to the business. Um, with a dividend discount model, it's slightly different because we're calculating the value of cash coming back to the investor, mm. which, is, which is an important distinction because what you're getting is the cash flow stream to yourself. That's effectively what you're saying. You could sell your shares in the future, but you're also going to get dividends in the meantime. Um, there was, there's some really interesting debates around this that maybe the DDM, the dividend discount model, like that cash flow coming back to the investor is the only cash flow that matters, which is a really interesting debate, even amongst professional investors. And one thing that I think we've established in this conversation is there's 
a difference between what necessarily we see in um, academia and you know what we're trying to get at in practice, which is a simplification of a lot of this. There's actually a Morgan Housel interview uh, presentation where he talks about the foolproof investing formula. It's basically dividend yield plus earnings growth plus or minus the change in valuations. Um, because you've got dividend yields no matter what. The earnings growth is important, but it also depends how much people are willing to pay for those new earnings and all the earnings overall. Um, and there are many other things we haven't talked about in this conversation. Like there are things like in uh, private equity, where we talk about internal rates of return or IRR, which is kind of a halfway between each of these formulas, because what we're effectively calculating is what's the what's the, the value of cash inflows and outflows. And NPV formulas are very much a similar thing, like net present value formulas. Um, but most commonly, I see DCFs used by fundamental investors on industrial companies. And then if we're talking banks, we might use a DDM, a, discount, a dividend discount model. And I guess a distinction here is you might rebuild your income statement. Let's say you value in Commonwealth Bank of Australia. You've basically got two sources of income. You've got the net interest income. Then you've got income from other parts of their business, like fees on wealth management or financial advice or whatever they got these days. You try and work out how much the cost to run the business. Um, and there's also losses in there. And then you've got like the cash earnings of the bank, how much of that cash is paid back in dividends or buybacks to investors. That's that basically where the DDM comes in. So I know I've simplified that part, but um, I guess that's the gist of it. Um, so we've talked about multiples, mate. We've talked about the di di uh, discounted cash flow analysis and how we calculate discount rates. Um, we've talked about DDMs, which I believe, I think DDMs are the oldest valuation metric. Um, I could Is that be, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I think so. Someone's going to correct me on this, but uh, I'm pretty sure on Wall Street, they were the first proper valuation models to be introduced because uh, at the time, like stock dividends were really important, right? Um, so we've kind of come to the end there. I don't think there's anything else from speaking with you. There's no other kind of ways to thinking about investing or valuation that come to your mind. Like you don't use any other methods. No, look, as I said, I think um, with a lot of the businesses that I look at, as I said, in the, the tech space, uh, a lot of them are growing at a very high pace. And I, I personally prefer to use DCF analysis uh, because I, I think the, the cash flow element is the most important. I also, I guess, like to think about a company's strategy and help uh, allow that strategy to help shape my model. You know, as I said before, is it going to be spending more on sales and marketing how is that potentially going to impact revenue growth, et cetera? So I, I find the DCF analysis really handy, but when you are applying it to a really high growth business, it, it, there are a lot of uncertainties, even more so than when you're valuing something like a, a West Farmers or you know something more mature like that. So in those sort of situations, I think it is good to keep an open mind about what valuation methodologies you want to employ. You know, you don't necessarily, as I said before, you don't necessarily have to lock yourself into just doing a DCF model. You can do a, a hybrid approach where you, you do a DCF model and then also get, you know, I, I guess a sanity check from a multiples approach and, you know, just both you use both of those and give them both a weight depending on how, um, how reasonable you think both of those, mm. those valuation methodologies are for a particular business. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think those, those are probably the two major ones that I would use. Um, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much the brunt of it.
Yeah, we've had so many different investors on the, or so many different methods used by different investors on the series thus far. We've had uh, methods where people use that kind of reverse DCF, DCFs based on historical growth rates um, that are like calculating the present value. I know people use IRR methods where they might calculate the cash outflow to buy the shares today, dividends expected in the future, plus the sale price that they'll sell the shares for in five years. What's the IRR on that? Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 15%. If it's over 10%, they buy it. If it's under 10%, they sell it. Like it's really like regimented. Everyone's kind of different in the way they go about it. But the idea is that you, I guess, get confident in what you're doing. Um, I, I will throw one more point in here is that if you are hearing us talk about this, it sounds very, very overwhelming. We'll have heaps of links in the show notes, but it sounds very overwhelming if you're new to investing to be like discounted cash flow analysis, like cash accounting, accrual account, like working capital. Like, geez, give me a break. I just wanted to buy the shares. Um, I, I think on, on that point as well, I, I think it's really important to note that a lot of what you and I have been talking about today has been textbook approach. Yeah. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be like that in practice. I talked about the whack in terms of how much uh, the, the weighted average cost of capital in terms of, you know, the discount rate. I, I, to be honest, I rarely use the, the actual formula to, to calculate WAC, uh, recognizing that the WAC is essentially the same as required rate of return. I often use my own required rate of return. Yep. So rather than saying, you know, rather than coming up with a WAC of 8.53% or whatever, I might say, no, I actually require a 10% rate of return. And I think keeping that in mind makes this sort of thing a lot more accessible. That you don't need to be a master at DCF or, or a master at you know forecasting these sort of things to to really start to invest or really start to get into this sort of thing. I think just having a broad understanding of what it is you're doing, what it is the model is trying to achieve, can be a great starting point. Yeah, just the act of building the model is fantastic as well. So yeah, yeah. my point is like put, remember what Ryan said. Remember what I said about if you're a long-term investor, it's important to first and foremost, understand what you're investing in. Um, and you want to invest in a great business that's going to be around in many years, most likely. Um, you know, Warren Buffett says, imagine they close the stock market for five years. Um, those are the types of businesses that you want to own if you'd be comfortable owning for the next five years. Um, and by the way, Warren Buffett's model for uh, calculating intrinsic value, and he uses something called owner earnings, which is different again to what we talked about. And it's basically the dividends plus the increase in the assets of the business. It's a very kind of like, it's almost like seen as like a slower approach, but it's what's tried and true for him and Charlie Munger. Um, there's so many different ways to do this. We're going to have heaps of links to the show notes. Obviously got the Rask Valley Investor Program. Ryan um, and the team at the Motley Fool Australia do a great job of informing and educating investors uh, in their membership services. Uh, I know Ryan's services on the back end, meaning it's a premium service, but Plenty of talented analysts over there at the Motley Fool. So I'll put links in the show notes to those. Ryan, just one final question before I let you go. Is what are some of the resources that you did the CFA? That's a huge, it's like the Everest of um, learning about investing and, and valuation. What are some resources that you use to, to learn about investing and valuation? Uh Without going specifically into valuation, uh, I, I will say that I, I had some really strong mentors uh, in, in the, the form of Joe Mega and also Matt Joss, um, who, who taught me a lot about valuation, um, particularly DCF side of things. Uh, Anuban Mahanti as well, who came after them, uh, was quite good with 
you know, re reverse reverse engineering those sort of DCFs, so the, the reverse DCF as you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so I think experience is is largely where I got learned about valuation from, and I've said this on on uh, the Motley Fool YouTube channel actually as well with Scott Phillips, uh, who who has done a lot of um, our favorite investing books type of videos. Um, one of the things that I've often said there is that I'm actually not one that's inclined to read too many specifically accounting or specifically finance books. I, I find they can get quite dry, uh, I, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners can agree. I, one of the areas that I've, I've really found I get a lot of value out of is is i guess more more mindset books more books that you know sort of talk about psychology and 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 i think that can really help with gaining more of a, a qualitative approach you know just being able to rather than focusing on the financials because as i said that comes later and that's often a, a much smaller element of the entire valuation process just being able to to understand human psychology and and human needs and desires, I think, is a really good starting point. So, uh, I mean, yeah, some of your members maybe you can share a, a YouTube link to our favorite investing books over at over at the Falls YouTube channel as well, and uh, they can go through some of those resources. But for me, yeah, some of those mindset books and, and psychology books I, I find really helpful. Yeah, I'm I'm just writing it down now. Um, I'll be including all of those. Um, yeah, those, I would agree with you. Once you understand the basics of accounting, I'd say a lot of it falls into place. Like once you understand yep. how income statements come together, cash flow statements, balance sheets, um, it really, from then on, it's just about applying that knowledge to different scenarios. And that's where it comes through like pattern recognition. It comes through basically just learning about different business models and understanding what is right or wrong to you as an investor. Um, and you know, I, you know what, as, as well, there's another book as well, and I'm, I'm actually just looking for it on my bookshelf here. Uh, it's called The Talent Code, and I think it's by Daniel Coyle. And I, I think that's one that you might have read as well. But it talks about how, you know, to, to really become a master at something, you need to apply time to it. You need to practice. You, you need to put it into practice, and that applies to tennis, piano. It also applies to investing. And uh, as I said a minute ago, you know, you gain a lot of this through experience. Just put yourself through you know, reading through business announcements, reading through annual reports, just sifting through those uh, those financial statements, seeing what's on there and how they move over time. I, I think that's a really valuable starting point for, for a lot of investors, you know, just actually going straight to the source. Mm, I'd say that's true. Like maybe don't, if you're new in your journey, like you're two to three years in, try not to take those shortcuts, which a lot of people take, which is to go straight to some sort of software where it does it for you, actually look at the numbers, look at how yep. things come together, read the footnotes. Um, that's where you get that kind of edge and that experience as an investor. Um, Ryan, we've talked a lot about valuation. I mean, we love it, but, you know, an hour of talking about valuation, um, I think all of our listeners might need to uh, go and uh, have a run or stretch their legs or something, we, mate. But we, uh, we might put calm out of business. I think we've probably put a, a couple of people to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, mate, it's always a pleasure. So. I'll have all the links to Ryan's Twitter in the show notes, uh, Motley Fool website where you can join one of the membership services, also the Motley Fool YouTube and some of the presentations that we referenced throughout. And as always, you can you can download the Investor Bootcamp training manual, which is available um, in a Google Doc form. You just hit file, download as Microsoft Word or whatever your flavor is. Ryan, thanks for joining me, mate. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me back, mate.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.